I'm born again of the Holy Spirit, filled with His Holy Spirit, uh, transformed and changed from who I once was to who God's made me to be. Uh, I know what the, the fullness of God coming down on someone is like. I've been there. I've experienced it. And we need to remember that sometimes, don't we? Uh, I, uh, my family are now born again. My mom and dad are saved. My sister's saved. My wife's a Christian. I have a new baby who's nine months old. His name is Abel. My middle name is Cain. So hopefully I don't kill him. He's still nine months old, so I don't want to kill him yet. He's cute. He does everything I say. You know how that goes, right? So uh, I can't imagine him ever doing anything I don't tell him to do. That'll just, I'll want to cry whenever he's going to break my heart one day probably. So I, anyways, uh, I, I love him, love my family, glad to be here. I'm friends with your pastor. He's a great man of God. I speak highly of him. And, uh, and his heart is genuine. I deal with a lot of people in and out of church. And I can tell you, not every pastor really wants to go deeper in God. If you have that, that's the rarity, not the norm. That's the rarity, not the norm. And he didn't pay me to say all of this. So I'm just saying uh, you have something that you need to work with, not against. I don't know what the atmosphere is like, but we need to all work together, don't we, to see Jesus Christ reign in this world. And for all those people missing out on these services, we just pray God help them. They're missing out. You're getting to be a part of it, and we thank God for that. So I'm not worried about everybody that's not here. Everyone that's here tonight, you're able to hear God's word. And I've come to you with a pure heart. Your pastor has a pure heart. The Holy Spirit has led the preparation for this. I know that he's made as many efforts as he can to promote it in the community. Throughout the week, we're going to be visiting people, uh, hopefully some lost sinners we've been praying for. Uh, that's what we need to be concerned about. And, uh, and so uh, that's our heart tonight. Uh, I am an evangelist. Uh, I don't say that I'm called to be ever a pastor, but God may do that one day. I don't know yet. The future has not happened yet for me to get there. But uh, I uh, do evangelism. I preach more in the open air than I do in a church. And when I say open air, I literally mean in the open air. On the street corners, outside the bars and clubs, on the campuses, Christian colleges mainly. Uh, I started a ministry, you can look it up on the internet or YouTube, Public Proclaimer Ministries. I uh, travel the country and preach in the open air and sleep on church floors or in people's couches or wherever I can go in order to take the gospel wherever I can take it. So uh, that's just kind of my heart. The whole world is God's platform as far as I am concerned. And uh, so we preach wherever it is we go. Uh, whether it be in Walmart or whatever, I've done it. I've been there. If you can think of a place to preach, I've probably preached there. So uh, that's just my heart. It's radical. I know it's weird, and that's just why I own it. I just own it. They called the apostles drunk, and it was only 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and nobody understood why they were so crazy. They were filled with the joy and the zeal of the Lord. You know, Christianity is not supposed to be boring, and all this stuff is extras for free. This isn't what I'm preaching on tonight. But if your Christianity is boring, it's because you're not in the fight. Nobody in war is bored. Nobody in combat is bored. Nobody's looking for something to do. There's plenty to do. And there's plenty happening. 
And there's plenty of need. Nobody needs to sit around. Everybody needs to pick up his weapon. Everybody needs to get his ammo, his grenades. He needs to get in the fight. And uh, if there's no soldier willing to fight and he gets court-martialed and sent to jail, uh, we get rid of him because he's not of any use. And it's the same thing when it comes in the kingdom of God. We need to be useful and be available and willing to serve God. I don't know why, but this, this poem is just burning on my heart. And I just want to read it because I love this poem. Uh, it's a parody. I read this in an evangelist book one time. If you ever heard of a guy named Ray Comfort, uh, he's wrote a lot of good literature. He's an open air preacher in California. He is one of the head guys when it comes to open air ministry. And this is the, it's a parody of Onward Christian Soldiers. It says, backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. Christ, our rightful master, stands against the foe. Onward into battle, we seem afraid to go. Backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. We are much divided, many bodies we, having different doctrines, but not much charity. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the cross of Jesus hidden does remain. Gates of hell should never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, but we think that it will fail. Sit here then, ye people, join our sleeping throng. Blend with ours your voices in a feeble song. Blessings, ease, and comfort ask from Christ the King. But with our modern thinking, we won't do a thing. Backward Christian soldiers. I didn't write that. That's anonymous, so don't blame me for it. Uh, I did not write that song, that, that parody of that. But I, I am of the idea here that we have the victory. And something about the Bible gives me the inclination that I don't need to be ashamed of God. And I need to be bold for Him. As well as for you. If you're in the battle for the Lord and right, keep on the firing line. If you win, my brother, surely you must fight, so keep on the firing line. There are many dangers that we all must face. If we die fighting, it's no disgrace. But a coward in the service will not find a place, so keep on the firing line. You must be fight, you must fight, be brave against all evil. Never run, nor even lag behind. For if you should win for God in the right, you must keep on the firing line. We sing these songs. We sing these lyrics. We know them. We must live them tonight. We must live them tonight. Let God consume us tonight with his truth and with his spirit. And so tonight I want to talk about something that's on my heart. This week as you come in here and out of here and that sort of thing. Uh, you're going to get a systematic. Tonight I'm going to preach on sin. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to preach on... <coughs> tomorrow I'm going to preach on hell. Uh, so um, don't skip tomorrow night's service. Sorry, thank you, brother. I'll tell you, there's been a doctrine that's not preached in the church much today. And it's not health, wealth, and happiness. And it's not the love of God. But it's the, uh, the judgment of God. The holiness of God. The, the wrath of God. The, the hell that exists. We seem to act as though this doesn't exist today. It disturbs my conscience like it disturbs yours. But it's there. It serves a reasonable purpose. So I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. That's probably one of the most hated doctrines in the church. Then Sunday, I'm going to preach on repentance. Sunday night on an unrepentant person. On Monday, I'm going to preach on the atonement of Jesus Christ. And on Tuesday, holiness. 
And so I hope to get through all that with the help of the Spirit. And all the teaching services, as Brother said, at 5.30. Conditions and pre- uh, pre- uh, prepares you for the sermon. So uh, I just encourage you to be there. If you can't, you got to work. I understand. Got family and got those types of struggles. I get that. I'm aware of it. But uh, if you can, please try to be there. So tonight I want to preach on sin. Sin seems to be a really uh, confused topic in the church today. And there would be some even to say that sin doesn't exist uh, in the world anymore. Does that surprise you? Look at the church that we live in nowadays. And I'm not a negative person. I'm a loving person. I'm 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 a go lucky person. But as a preacher and as a Christian, we must live in accordance with reality. We are a people of truth, not a people of fairy tale. We believe in a God who really was, really is, who really flooded the world, who really has a hell, who really has a heaven, who really died and made atonement for our sin, who really lives and who's really inviting in his believers and who's really coming again. And we really are his church. We really are. There's nothing playful about this. There's nothing mock or joking or to laugh about in that sense of things. We're, we're not playing games. We have the truth before us. We have the word of God. Look what he's done for us. And if there's something tonight that's going to affect how you look at everything in your life, everything in your Christian experience, it's going to be how you look at the subject of sin. If there's ever a doctrine that someone hates, it's going to be sin or hell. I tell you why they hate it is because it's one of the most serious and sincere things that God talks about in his scriptures. And I would be raw too if I were in sin and the preacher wanted to preach on sin. I would be raw if I was on my way to hell and the preacher wanted to preach on hell. I know why it bothers people for the exact reason that it should bother people. Sin, sin, the subject of sin tonight. What is it? In 1 John 3, 4, the Bible says sin is transgression of the law. James 4, 17 says to him that knows to do good, but doesn't do it to him. It is sin. Romans 14, 23, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Three very plain Bible verses on what sin is. Transgression of God's law, doing what you know you shouldn't do, and not something that is of of, uh, of the flesh and not of faith. Gordon C. Olson said this. When anything is preached that belittles sin. And leads to self pity. It is contrary to the Bible. When anything is preached. That promotes you feeling sorry for yourself. Rather than blaming yourself for sin. That is not the doctrine of the Bible concerning sin. The Bible, according to the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, said in Romans 1.20 that the world of sinful men is without excuse. I don't preach outside the bars and clubs thinking, oh, you poor people, you've got an excuse. I don't preach to the, to the college kid or to the, or to the person at some other church or to some other place. Oh, you've got an excuse for your disobedience to God. There is no excuse to the disobedience of God. And we'll talk about it further. Much teaching today has given mankind a thorough excuse for their sin. This has led to the lack of the fear of God in our churches. A lack of holy living in the pulpit and pew. And a lack of revival in the church. All true revival of the past began when men understand and take full responsibility for their own sin. Revival is a confrontation between God and his people. 
Every revival comes whenever the people realize they are wrong and they need God. There's a danger here. I've preached several revivals. I've been in lots of revival meetings. I'm only 25. I don't believe that I have ever seen a revival. Do you see what I'm saying? I've been in revival meetings. And some of the older ones. And I'm not talking bad about you. You know what the past was like. Everybody wants to talk to me. Oh, you remember the, the glory days. All the old people at our church. They go on and on. My church was born out of a revival in 1953. Holy Ghost meeting in Durban, Kentucky. The entire neighborhood was born again. And they built a church because all the people needed a place to go to church now. Because they were all saved. When's the last time that happened in this nation? Where is that at? God has not changed. Look at our songs. Look at what we know about him. We have so much available at our fingertips. But will we take it? It's so much responsibility. Will we shrink back from it? We don't want to shrink back from God. You see, revival is a confrontation between God and his people. And it's for our good. God is not trying to hurt you and confronting you about where you stand before him individually, all of us. God never comes to us with the intention of injuring us. God's intention is to revive us. Revive us again. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Revive us again, we sing. That's what we want. Revive us again, the hymnal says. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, as the sisters saying tonight, He is the quickening Spirit, the Bible says. To quicken something is the same word as to say He's the reviving Spirit. He's the one who brings to life again. He's the one who quickens again. And the reason, the reason, and I'm not saying this to be offensive, the reason that you have set apart these meetings, whether or not you know it providentially, made of God or not, the reason these meetings are here is because God is trying to reach down to you. This church, forget everybody else, God deals with us as individuals. And thank God he does. Thank God he does. I mean, that God has any respect to me, David said in his Psalms. Who am I? Who are we as, as a Carruthersville? Carruthersville. He told me I messed up in that little video he showed and I couldn't go back and fix it. Carruthersville? Carruthersville. At Carruthersville First Assemblies of God, you have chosen tonight to enter into his presence and have covenanted under the authority and leadership of your pastor five days of meetings. Throughout this time, either you will be for the better or for the worse by the time these five days are over. Because the Holy Spirit is either yielded to or he's resisted one or the other. There is no middle ground. There is no we're going to have a good time, clap our hands and go home the same. And by the time these five days are over, nothing is different. Because either you're completely revived. There's a move of God in the church and community. And we either yield to him or we resist him. And we have to be the beginning agent of it. We have to. We're the people of God. We have to be the ones available to go out and bring them in. We have to be available. We have to be willing. And we cannot resist him. Revival does not leave you with an alternate option. And what God is trying to do with you tonight. He's trying to confront. Whether or not we like it or not. The sin problem that has led us here. Because the reason something needs revived. And I work in the medical field. We only shock something when it's dead. Okay. Nobody needs shock that's breathing. 
and it's walking and talking. You might kill them if you shock them while they're alive. The reason God has come down here and the reason you have these five days of meetings, whether or not you know it or not, and I may be preaching to the choir here, I probably am, but the reason that he's dealing with the church tonight is because this church, forget everybody else, not the Baptist church down the street, not the Nazarenes or the Methodists or the Pentecostals or the Presbyterians or the Lutherans or the Episcopalians or the Catholics down the road, God is dealing with us tonight. In this community, in this part of the nation, in this part of the world, in this part of his universe. And that's how dangerous it is to come careless into the presence of God. Very scary. You see, God comes down to confront people for their welfare. Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 23, Peter said this, You men of Israel, hear that these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you've taken, and by wicked hands you've crucified and slain. That is such an offensive preaching. He's not being like Jesus. Listen to how hateful Peter is. You wicked men. You've crucified the son of God. You've taken with bloody hands and slain him. Such bold faced, in your face, confrontational preaching. Surely that's not from God. You see what I'm saying? Surely that's not God's voice. God's loving, right? Of course he is. We've mistaken what God's love looks like in an age of backslidedness, coldness, and immorality and darkness. And when the people heard such plain preaching from Peter, look what they said. On, uh, they, once Peter's preaching on sin being their fault, the Bible says that they cried out. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? When he was a bold and in their face and to the point, they got it and they could act on it. And I don't want to be around things. I don't want to dance around things in the sense that I don't want to be uh, beating around the bush tonight. That there are two main factors of revival that I have seen. I've studied revival for years. It's one of my passions. If you go to my house in my, in my room, my wife is always saying, you bought another book? I have lots of books I've not read and I intend to buy more. And if you go on my eBay search thing, you'll find like 10 more in my account probably. I love reading about revival because you know what? I hunger for it and I've never seen it. And some of you have seen it. It makes me jealous. You see what I'm saying? And two chief characteristics of revival are the fear of God and the repentance of sin. And God does all of that for our good. Whoever entered into the presence of God that was not terrified before him. Until he said, he patted them on the shoulder and said, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. Until he comforts you, there's reason to be terrified before him at his coming, his presence. Till he assures us of his heart towards us and us in front of him, we have reason to be afraid. And the church world has forgotten the fear of God. And it's led to a lack of burden in our prayer life for our brother, our sister, our husband, our father, our mother, our aunt, our children. It has le led to a lack of, a, of the praying, of the prayer meeting, of the faithful preaching. You can't have preachers preaching on sin when they have sin in their life. You see what I'm saying? 
The church world is full of this. Everywhere I go, one of the top Baptist pastors in my local area where I am from just about a month ago got busted for being a pedophile. Children's stuff was found on his computer. Teacher in a local school. Well-reputed man, well-thought-of, wicked, wicked, wicked. We, I know why it is the way it is. People resist God on one of the most important subjects, and that subject is sin. Much understanding in the public today concerning the subject of sin has made man the, the victim and God the mean bully who caused, purposed, or even some say created sin. They imply God wanted sin to exist. Such thinking on sin can never spur the brokenness and sorrow necessary to true revival. One of my favorite Bible verses is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. We need some godly sorrow during this revival or there'll be no renewing. You know, Peter was preaching in the book of Acts and Peter said, Repent ye therefore that times of refreshing may come from the presence of God, from the glory of his power. God wants to bless you and heal you and renew you as a church. Yes, it's available. Yes, it's there. Yes, God wants you to have it. Yes, he wants your prayer life on fire. Yes, he wants you reading your Bible every single day and you wanting to do it, not just doing it. And God wants to move in your heart and your life. But you must agree with him now. Right where you stand. Right where your heart is. Right where he sees you. That if you don't get right with him at the altar. You're never going to change. Nothing's ever going to move. Nothing's ever going to happen. Whether or not I preached. Or Billy Graham preached. Or if Paul the Apostle were here and preached. He, you cannot change a heart that won't be renewed. You have to work with God. He reaches down, but we must reach back up to him. There's been much talk of it being all on God. Friend, there's a lot on your shoulders tonight. God loves every person in hell. They still went there. They neglected their duty. They neglected so great a salvation. We don't want to be blamable of the same cause as neglecting God. I have found in my open air preaching, preaching in the open air, uh, around the bars and clubs and colleges, you can imagine, I'm sure, the excuses I've heard. And most of them sound very theological. Most of them have a complete system from their birth to their grave of how Jesus is going to save them while they sin every single day in word, in thought, and in action. That Jesus is a savior for them in their sin instead of a savior from their sin. Matthew one twenty one says, Ye shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The modern gospel is you're saved in your sin. Sin all you want. You can't help it. It's all part of God's big plan. Jesus, you know, he, he even died, though I can't find it in the Bible, for all of our future transgressions. So that, hey, no matter what you do now or later, it never affects anything. So really, we're, just, we're all good. It's all okay. And this careless attitude has been taught at seminary and has been taught from the pulpit. It's been went down to the pew and it's went out to the sinners. And most of them can quote church doctrine to a T and can tell you, well, they don't need to fear God. And while everyone's a sinner and nobody's all right and everything's okay, they feel that they have a right to skip church and avoid God. They think they have an ability to avoid him. 
That, ever, that God just understands. They can't help it that they're a drug addict. They can't help it that they're an alcoholic. They can't help it that they're an adulterer, a thief, or a liar. That they're just, it's just part of their nature, you see. They just can't help it. They were born that way, as that wicked song says. And I preach at the gay pride parades. I love people of all, uh, all uh, conditions of sin. I want all of them to be saved. But they chant that we're born this way, born this way, born this way. Dear friend, is that the truth? Is that what sin is? Uh, Did God want this to become this mess that it is? Because I don't see God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. I see man's will being done. Satan's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. I hate to say it, but I see Satan's will being done in the church. In a lot of ways. I'm not talking about here necessarily. I don't know nothing in or out of this place. I have no clue of Adam. But I am part of the church world and I know how it works. And I've been uh, uh, involved for many years with, uh, with these things. And it breaks my heart. It breaks God's heart. God is the most broken being in the universe. The most one that's with the most grief. The one that is most sorrowful. The one that has a right to be the most offended is God. Look at all he's done to redeem us. And we care so little for him. That we would twist the Bible. To justify an unbelieving life in the expectation that he must save us in the end because he's loving. Tempting God. You see, God's sin is not a sickness or a disease of the body. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, just bear with me. Sinners quote church doctrine in logical sequence to defend why expecting repentance out of them is unnecessary. Why they will never stop sinning and why God must have developed a plan to save them in it instead of save it them from it. Uh, we see that such ideas have made God the author, the cause, the originator of all the misery of all the universe. Since sin is the cause of, of all misery and all sadness in the universe. You know, I work as a nurse. I used to work in critical care. I now work in neuroscience care in a medical community. And I, uh, I, I have had plenty of nights where I have cried tears. Because of the misery. Alcoholics, drug addicts I take care of. Love them. I love them, but I see their misery and it breaks my heart. I know it breaks God's. All the death that I have seen. I have seen so many people die. And all of it is the cause and the existence of it is because of sin. All of this. What a horrible thing. What a wicked thing, as God said in the Old Testament. What a detestable thing that sin is. Only by the sweeping aside of all excuses can come a total dependency upon the mercy of God. Through the atoning death of Christ, which is saving faith. Gordon Olson said that only when we sweep all excuses aside can we come to total dependency upon the mercy of God. Because we realize when we're coming to him, there's nothing in us to commend us before his mercy. God, if you don't forgive me, you'd be just in doing so. I deserve to go to hell. If anyone in here deserves to go to hell, it should be me. And that needs to be the attitude of everyone in here. Not because we're uh, made of of such an existence that God's despised us. God made us fearfully and wonderfully created in the womb. Marvelous are his works and his ways past finding out, the psalmist said. Fearful and wonderfully made in the womb, the Bible says you were. Created by God. Every baby in the womb is knit in the womb by God himself. Even now, even today, God creates every person in the womb. 
That is amazing to me. Nobody ever looks at that child says, there's my little future murderer. There's my little future liar, thief. There's my future adulterer and fornicator, blasphemer and drunkard. We know the innocency of God's creative work. That's the way God works. When God saves us, he brings us back into a state of innocence. That's amazing to me. And this is our, we've gotten away from this basic idea of holiness and sin. That it's a choice and compared it into physical things. We've equated sin, not with choice, but with natural law. Physical law. You see, I jump. If I jump from here, that's, there's a law at work there. I didn't choose to fall down here. That's the way God governs things. God has created all things for his glory. The physical world, the moral world of mankind, and, uh, and he governs it all. The physical world, plants, uh, solar systems, uh, non-animate life, he governs through cause and effect. Natural laws. Here's one natural law. God also governs the animal kingdom through laws, the law of instinct. But God governs man in a different way. He governs man by the law uh, of love. He governs man by the law of reason or truth. And the way that God has made us is such that he asks of us nothing more than what is our natural duty, obligation, and responsibility. God's law, the Bible teaches, is the law of love, as we'll get into in a moment. But I just want to tear away at this idea just really briefly that our misconception about sin, look at what it's done. Look at all this. Every seat here by the millions, millions. If you could fit a million people into every chair in this room, you would not match the number of how many people are on their way to hell tonight. I cannot conceive of a hundred people being stacked here on top of one another. You could stretch them to the moon and back. And you would not reach the number of those that are without hope tonight. And I believe a lot of it has genuinely been misconceptions that we've grown to love rather than hate. And it has led to a lot of people going to hell because of it. Is this the correct understanding of sin? Is this the correct view of God? What is sin? Is it your fault or someone else's? Until a proper view of sin is had, revival cannot and will not come. Uh, Charles Finney said this, Revival is a breaking down of the heart, a getting down into the dust before God, with deep humility and forsaking of sin. But in order to forsake sin, we must know what it is. Revival itself is a confrontation between one another, God and the church, over its sin. And sin is the the chief issue which needs to be addressed in times of revival in order to rightly understand sin we must first get a right understanding of God and ourselves God created mankind in his image in his likeness Genesis 1:27 bearing his attributes it is clear from biblical revelation that God created man with joy and happiness in mind God created man for blessed fellowship and joy isn't it wonderful God has showed himself to be the God of great mercy, Exodus 34, 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the Bible says of God. In Israel's backslidings, how often God came to their rescue when they cried out for him and didn't deserve it. The Lord has revealed his plans that they are to prosper you and not to harm you. He said that in Jeremiah, right before he sent Babylon to destroy them. He begged them through Jeremiah, Israel, my plans are to profit you, not to harm you. To give you a hope and a peace and a future. 
He sent prophets to them daily, begging them. They wouldn't listen. God would have repented of destroying them if they would have repented of their sin. Just like Nineveh. He declared to Israel his plans were to profit them. The Bible declares of God that he delights in mercy. Time and sermon would fail to tell you of the overabundant goodness of God and his desire for the happiness of man. Time and sermon would fail. Song and tongue would fail to tell you of God's desire, God's heart, that he has pursued this world with the desire for their blessedness, with their desire for joy and peace, and how oft they have resisted his wooings through the Spirit. We don't want to be a part of that number. Holiness, you may have heard this before. Holiness And consequent happiness is always God's will for moral beings. Sin and the misery that follows is always contrary to God's will. Always. Nobody in here who is a Christian can ever say that the Holy Spirit has come to you and told you, I would rather you sin right now. I would prefer that you do wrong right now. That something good will come out of you doing what pleases yourself and not God. That's the lie of the devil. That's what he told Eve in the garden. Oh, God's keeping something from you. He knows if you eat of this tree, you'll be like he is. Knowing good and evil, God don't want you to be like that. So you need to avoid, you don't need to trust God. He's he's holding back on you. We don't want to believe the same lie. God's law, the Bible declares, was given for thy good. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. The law of God. There's a lot of misconception as to what the law of God is. Because of who God is. And because of who we are. As beings made in his image. God has only commanded What is reasonable in light of who we are and who he is. As king of kings and lord of lords and a god of great love that he is. He's worthy of our worship and worthy of our devotion. Not because he says he's worthy. But because of who he is that he is worthy. We worship God for who he is. We ought to. But not only should we worship God for who he is and love him for who he is because he is supremely valuable and God's happiness is supremely valuable above our own. But we also ought to love our neighbor equally to ourselves because of their equal value in God's image being made in God's image like as myself. I ought to love them equally to my own self because of who they are. God's image bearing witness on them. So I should love God supremely because of who he is. He's God. I should love my neighbor equally to myself because of who you are and who I am to you a person made in God's image and sight this is the law Jesus taught us the law of love Matthew 22 verse 37 through 40 they came to him and said master tell us what is the greatest law Jesus said this is the law that you should love God with all your heart all your soul mind and strength and the second is likened unto it love your neighbor as yourself and on these two hangs all the law and all the prophets 
everything else on this principle, the principle of love. God's law is love tonight. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 11, this is a great one to quote uh, when you're witnessing to people. And uh, I pray that you do that regularly. In Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loves another fulfills the law of God. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, you shall not kill, steal, lie, covet, if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not work any ill to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The law of God tonight is the law of love. Another way you could say it is the law of reason, the law of intelligence, the law of truth. Why do I say that? Because what God's law commands is intelligent, reasonable, and truthful. If I lie to you, I hurt you. If I steal from you, I hurt you. If I covet what's yours, I hurt myself, hurt God, hurt you. I become injurious in my behavior towards you. If I hurt your spouse or take your wife or injure your children. If I live in a sinful, selfish way towards you, it hurts you. And it's intelligent that God should say we not live that way. Because it's bad. Because it doesn't promote the good, the highest good, the most valuable. And God is after the highest good he can attain with the world as it is today. And he has only commanded what is wise and reasonable with us as moral agents. What I mean by that, we are beings with the ability to think, feel, and choose. And I'm going to say that all week because it's going to have a lot to do with everything I say. You're just like God in the sense that you can think like God thinks. You can feel as God feels. You can choose as God chooses. We're not like animals. We're higher than animals. You're not a monkey. You're not a developed salamander. Okay, praise God. Evil, evolution, as I tell the college students. I know there's a lot of struggle in that for the young people in the room here. It's trash. It's garbage. They build it on a system that's only reliable up to 2,000 years. You ask all of them. They have tons of presuppositions to bring them to their conclusions of 2 trillion years. And they have no reason or justification ultimately to say that. That's why they can't call it truth. They call it theory. 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 Maybe. Maybe. It's an idea somebody has. So we need to challenge those presuppositions. Instead, we pay millions of dollars to keep them teaching such filth in our schools. Keep your kids out of those schools. Trash. Trash. It's a little side note. I get fired up about it. You see what it leads to. People have no respect for God today. Because they feel like they're just a developed animal. Hey, I'm going to live. Do what I want to do. Die. And it's all just going to be what it is. And I'm good. You're good. Everybody's good. Just live it up. Just eat and to drink. The Old Testament says. For tomorrow we all perish. That is their view. Each man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's where we've come today. God says do this for your good, your blessedness. God says don't do that for your good. That your joy and happiness may abound. God has commanded what is wise and reasonable and intelligent. And the first time I ever did anything intelligent in my life was whenever I got right with God. And whenever I got right with God, everything else flowed with it. Everything else followed after it in suit. But a lot of people are resisting that work. They're resisting that move of the Spirit. They're resisting it going their own way tonight. 
Sin is a transgression of the law of love, the law of reason, the law of intelligence. Sin is to live selfish and to put self above the value of God and to put self above the value of equality in your neighbor. Sin is to transgress the purpose of love and the value you know you should give to God and the value you know you should give to your neighbor. This being sins of omission or commission, wherever way you want to turn it. Sin hurts God. And I know the reason there is a struggle somewhere in the midst is because of sin. In Israel, in Israel, it only took one man to ruin the whole camp. Achan, everybody remember him? Little thief. God said, destroy it all. Achan saw some gold, saw some garments. He liked them. Maybe he could take him to the local pawn shop, get a good deal, make a little money, doing against God's will. The whole nation began to lose the battle. What in the world is going on? There's something wrong in the camp here. And I know that's our problem tonight. Every revival I've ever known of, everyone, everyone, everyone is at the altar saying, Lord, is there anything in me? Is there anything in me? The heart cry is, God, search my heart. Try my spirit. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalms 139. Sin is a transgression of the law of love. And because of the value God has and the value you have, I have obligation because I perceive your value to love you because I know your value. I know your worth. That God has the supreme worth as God. You have value as my neighbor made in his image. Because I perceive that in you and about God, it brings me obligation to do it because I know it's right to treat you according to my knowledge. And whenever I don't live according to my knowledge but according to my flesh... The minding of the flesh, the carnal mind, I transgress the law of love. I begin to put self up above you, put self up above God, and all of it becomes tumbling down. God created man uniquely with the ability of moral choice, right and wrong, holiness or sin, and that our love to him would be voluntary. God is looking for people that will abide according to the law of love voluntarily. As free moral beings with the power of contrary choice tonight. What I mean by a free moral being. If I say that all week, this is what I mean by that. That you have the ability to choose between evil or good and it's in your power to make the choice. That you have alternate motives. You have things that are working on you. Hey, this is going to feel good. Do that. No, I know this is truth, so I need to do this. You have competing motives trying to get time to influence your choice. But ultimately, your will is free to choose between holiness or sin, evil or goodness. And the, the decision resides in your hands. Independent of God and all of his wooings through the spirit. Independent of Satan and all the temptations that come of the world, flesh, or the devil. As free moral beings made in God's sight under his moral government. God having given a law with penalties attached to it. Creating a government over man for your good. Under this government we have rebelled. This government was given for our good. God wants to maintain the law of love for your good. Whenever God dispenses penalties to sinners in hell. It's for the good of the public. When God shows you mercy and grace and forgiving you. And transforming your heart. It's for your good. It's for the public's good. 
God is not just a father. And I'm all about God being a father. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, you need to be adopted into the family of God. All people are the creation of God. Not all men are children of God. Jesus called certain men children of the devil. And why did he call them that? Because they would not believe on him. He called people children of the devil. Jesus was not being like Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Jesus would never say that. They tried to push him off a cliff because he said that. They tried to stone him because he said that. They tried to kill him multiple times. Why? Because he testified of the world's works. That the works thereof are evil in his sight. In God's sight. God has created a government over us. God knows it's valuable to promote love. So he himself knows he's obligated to govern over us. And to maintain love for the good of us all. And for the glory of himself. God knows it's valuable that he he maintain peace, order, and love in the universe he has made. So he maintains a government over us. God has laws created in suit with our nature. God dispenses rewards and punishments to the guilty or innocent. God maintains governmental authority over us. God is the king of all men, though all men may not live like his son or daughter. God is the king of every person that ever stood before him. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he's Lord, whether they like it or not. Every sinner in this community, every person in your family that's not saved, whether they like it or not. Every person in this church that treats God with contempt and slack behavior and laziness, whether they like it or not, they have to give an account to him on judgment day and cry out that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God maintains this government over us for our good. He promotes the law and maintains it for our good. And against this law of love, this law of reason, when I perceive the value of my cousin and I lied to him, or when I perceive the value of God and I would not give him worship and I went against his ways, from a young child, I knew what I was doing was selfishness and wrong. And in that sense of things, I've Put myself on the path of selfishness, on the path of sin, on the path of death, destruction. God's government exists for our good. His law exists for our good. And it's, it's not that God created moral law, his law over us. If he made us any other way, the law would be different. But because he made us in his image, there are certain things which lead to our blessedness. There are certain things which lead to our harm. And those very things are intrinsic in the nature of it. If I stand here and I were to jump and not go down, there would be a problem here. If there's no law of gravity, imagine the solar system and all that would happen. All the intricacy, sorry, of all the planets. How beautifully orchestrated they move through the universe in perfection. So calculable. I could look back a thousand days ago and tell you what, uh, what the moon was like. I mean, God is calculable and reasonable. And he's the same way when it comes to our morality as beings under his government. God has calculated for us what is for our good. He's commanded what just is in the nature of things. And he expects it out of us that we obey him as such. I perceive the value of your uh, life, of your happiness and of God's happiness. But instead I desire to gratify myself. That is the essence of sin. Sin a lot of times uh, we sort of have created it to be this sort of outward act. That you know sin is getting drunk and it is. Or sin is adultery or pornography which it is. 
or uh, sin is lying, which it is, or murder, which it is. But sin is birthed out of a motive of the heart. And nobody in here does anything for no reason at all. We do what we do for motives. We have reasons why we do what we do. We come to church for certain reasons. We may uh, do what we do with our spouse as far as being honest or be mean to them for certain reasons of heart. There's motives back behind the will, back behind the action, I should say, that flavor the action itself. That I do what I do out here because I've decided what I want to do in here. It's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. It's out of the heart that precedes fornications, blasphemies, thefts, covetousness. It's on the heart God judges and looks. People today tell me that all the time. They're like, God sees my heart. Who are you? And you can imagine that in the open air how that can get. And it's as if God looking on your heart is something light or or okay. I mean, for, for a sinner, I'll go preach outside of a bar and, and a sinner will come out completely drunk saying, God knows my heart. You can't preach that my, what I'm doing is sin. And I look at them and I say... I mean, don't you understand that God knowing your heart is the problem for you? God knowing your heart is the issue here for you. You have a problem because God knows your heart. And it's wicked. And it's wrong. The heart is where we decide why we do what we do. It's in the heart that we decide to love God supremely and our neighbor equally to ourselves, Or it's to love self above everything else. It's in the heart we choose one of these two motives. Either love or self. And sin is the rejection of the love we know we ought to show to God. And we ought to show to our neighbor as ourselves. It is a rejection of intelligence. A rejection of reason. A rejection of truth. And a hell-bent purpose on self-gratification, even if it were to the grave and to the pit itself. That is terrifying. How could a man do this? In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, madness is in their hearts. Why they yet live? Madness in men's hearts. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, Satan said to Adam and Eve. He was trying to govern Adam and Eve with lies. God tries to govern us with truth. In the day you eat of it, you're going to die. And then Satan comes and he says, did God say you're really going to die? He challenged it. They began to think. Satan tries to guide your life with lies. God tries to guide you with truth because you're a free moral agent. He's not going to violate your will to get you to do what he would desire. So he offers you motives. He seeks to influence you. The Bible says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Let us reason together. God came down to Israel when they were about to be judged. He said, did you find any offensive way in me? Why have you done this? Did, what, what, did you not care about my way? What did I do to you that you did not follow me? You can see God exasperated that he's done all he has done. And still men would choose to reject his love and mercy. 
So God desires to govern us with truth. He presents to our mind not only our obligation to love him and love our neighbor as ourselves, but he's given us his word. He has sent forth his spirit into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. He has sought to guide us and influence us to live according to the principle of love that we know we ought to live according to and which we need to repent for not having in our life. And that is exactly what sin is. It is a violation of truth for a choice to live for self. Cain, uh, Cain chose to sin after Adam and Eve fell for one reason, because God, uh, because he chose to gratify himself. He slew his brother Abel to gratify himself. God came to Cain and told him, Cain, if you do well, will it not be accepted of you? But if you do not, sin lies at the door. It's desires to master you, but you must reign over it. And Cain chose not to do that. God knows sin is not physical or a physical something, but sin is a choice of the mind and an intention of the heart to self-gratification. It's a minding of the flesh. The Bible says, by nature, by minding of the flesh, children of wrath, that they minded the flesh, minded earthly things. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, talking about the carnal mind, verse 7, that the carnal mind is enmity against God. That means enemy, foreign, and and, and, an intrusion to God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal body. By his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore brethren we are debtors. Not to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh. That's minding your flesh. Self purposed in life. You shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body. You shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God. They are the sons of God. If the church were led by the spirit of God. Like it needs to be. Like we need to yield to him to be able to be led that way. Me too. Me too. Every day. Every day. I'm not exempt of this. I'm not higher than this. I'm obligated to love you like you deserve to be and love God like he deserves to be according to my several ability. Love God with all your. A baby Christian's your may be a little smaller than an older Christian. But with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, love God. In all your heart, your mind, your strength, love your neighbor as yourself with all the ability that you have. God governs nature by force, as we discussed earlier. God governs us by motives and influence appealing to our minds. God comes to the sin of Adam and Eve and levels of judgment. Whenever Adam and Eve sin, the consequences of their rebellion can be found in Genesis chapter 2, 3, 4. God comes to them and delineates a judgment. Look what he says. Labor by the sweat of his brow, increase pain in childbearing, and that the man and woman relationship would change. But the loss of ability to obey God or free will is not mentioned anywhere in the scriptural text. As a cost for sin, the ability to obey God is not mentioned. The ability to disobey or to obey is not lost. The ability to do what God says is not even mentioned in one of the commandments that God gave as a judgment over them. 
God comes to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and says, I set before you life and death, a blessing and a cursing, therefore choose life. In Ezekiel, God appeals to Israel, begging them, why will you die? Turn yourselves and live. The Lord treated Israel as descendants of Adam after the fall, as though they were responsible with making a choice. And he attempted to influence that choice, sending prophets unto them night and day, rising early. Look at what Jeremiah had to say in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 4. I love this verse. It tells you God's heart. And the Lord has sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early, God sent them. But you have not listened, nor have you inclined your ear to hear. They said, turn you again now, everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever. And go not after other gods to serve them, to worship them and do not go after them to provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. And I will do you no hurt, the Lord said. Yet you've not listened to me, saith the Lord, that you might provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands. And this has all been to your own hurt. Jeremiah 25, verse 4 through 7. God is not edging on his seat to hurt someone. God wants to love men. He wants to show them the fullness of his blessedness and joy. God's wanting to lean in tonight and revive and renew and refresh every person here in our world, our nation. God God does not abide in a state of wrath. He's provoked to wrath. He prefers to be in a state of love. God being angry is an intrusion on his happiness. The fact that God gets angry at our sin is an intrusion on how he wants to feel. All of this is because of what you did, he told him. I didn't want to hurt you. I sent my prophets to bless you, but you would not listen. And all of this to your own hurt, Jeremiah 25, 7. He told them, dwell in the land God has given to you. God has given to us through his blood a spiritual land of promise. We are spiritual Israel. We have been circumcised in heart, the true circumcision of the spirit, not of the flesh, whose praise is not of men, but of God. That is us. We have a promised land to inherit. We have a fullness of joy to walk in. We have a promised land of a spiritually vibrant church that God wants us to have, that God can bring down to us, that he wants us to walk in and to inherit. And he sends his prophets night and day begging you to do his will, but you cannot resist it. And if you do, it's only to your hurt. That's the nature of sin. It feels good for a season, but afterwards it brings judgment. There's no joy in it. When I got saved and I returned to a life of truth, a life of reason, a life of intelligence, I began to treat everyone like I'm supposed to and treat God like I'm supposed to. And in that state, there's therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That's conditional. The NIV takes out that last part, and that's in the original Greek. Who walk not after the flesh. But after the spirit, conditional, no condemnation. If we're walking in if we're walking in the flesh, you're still condemned under the law of God. Paul taught the difference between condemnation and not was the law versus grace. If we're still sinning, we're under the law and we're going to die under it. That's why he said you should not sin anymore because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Grace is the difference maker, bringing you from a state of bondage to a state of freedom, from a state of misery to a state of peace. If you're in God's grace tonight, you're not going to be practicing things he hates. 
The law can't condemn you. Why? Not because you're exempt and God sees you through some sort of mystical vision, but because you really live a different life. It can't condemn you. Because your heart is really changed. Justification means being brought back into a state where God says, that is right. That is right. A state that is justifiable in his sight. That's the power of salvation. The glory of the cross. The thing that has happened. The baptism of the Holy Ghost, glory to God. Will change your life. And bring you into a state of freedom. And you need it tonight. And I'm convinced a lot of people are struggling with a lot of stuff. Because they just won't get to the altar. And you just won't give it up. And all of it is to your own hurt. God's love can change the hardest of hearts. One of the hardest people in our community's name was Flip Diamond. His name was Flip. And he literally had a brother whose name was Flop. Flip and Flop. I'm not talking bad about him. So understand me. We ran a food pantry. And he was a very abrupt, abrasive, large man. Huge van, full of trash. He's a really dirty guy. He was, he come into church smoking one time. We told him he couldn't do that. He put tacks in the parking lot the next week and we had a bunch of flat tires. Because we made him mad about the cigarette. But he kept coming back to our food pantry and he kept coming back. And boy, is he a hard one to love. The most precious baptism I ever seen in my life was Flip Diamond. Born again of the Holy Spirit. He weeped at the baptism. Begging people for forgiveness. That he had been such a mean person. He couldn't read. He couldn't write. He was abused by his father his whole life. His dad was an alcoholic. They had a horrible upbringing. Everybody knew how horrible of a life they had. And the most beautiful baptism I have ever seen was Flip Diamond. God's grace can come down and change the hardest of hearts and restore him. He was one of the most loving people I ever met after he got saved. No more flat tires. The spirit of God was reigning in his heart. He came to revival services, not asking for food, but seeking the spirit. Not that there's something wrong with that tonight if you're hungry. But God was, he had a completely different atmosphere about him. His heart was brought back into line with intelligence. Self was dethroned. There was no more condemnation because he was brought into a new life through the spirit of God. By the grace of his gospel, uh, he began to live according to the law of love, which God expects of him that he has ability to keep through the power of the spirit and we have that available to us tonight but there's been so much misery so much loss so much hurt over the doctrine of sin that men cannot stop it and cannot avoid it jesus said through the or the spirit through the apostle paul in first corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 know ye not such uh, that temptation comes to us and we're not tempted above our ability. And God was, is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able and will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. No temptation is taking you but such as is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able and will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it tonight. And God would not give you a way of escape if he purposed from two million years ago... That you should sin right there. Why would he give you a way of escape? Oh what else? In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. The Bible says. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. But he also knows how to reserve the unjust. To the day of judgment to be punished. James chapter 1 verse 4 through 6. Look at all these verses. Talking about temptation. 
James 1, verse 13 to 16. Let no, no, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Brethren, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his what? His own selfishness. Lust, that means passionate desire. See that the tree is good for food. And to make one wise, she took thereof and ate and gave also to her husband and he did eat. The desire, uncontrolled desire. Self becomes the ruling principle. Do not err, my beloved brethren. John said in 1 John 2, 1, I write these things unto you so that you sin not. That you sin not. That doesn't make any sense if he expects us to. I write these things, you sin not. But if, if, maybe. The modern church has changed it to say, but when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The Bible says, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. When you, will, when you obey, we put if we obey. All of these constant excuses. And what we're, we're resisting it to our own hurt. The freedom is available. He's offering it to you. It's out there and there for the people. And they're resisting it to their own hurt. The law of love brings peace, joy, and mercy forevermore. The law of reason, the law of intelligence. I am closing. John Wesley said sin is a voluntary transgression of a known law of God. A.W. Tozer said sin is a voluntary commission of an act known to be contrary to the will of God. You cannot escape if you've developed the intellect and the mental capacity of reason that you know your obligation to your neighbor and to God. It's inescapable unless you have some sort of mental disability that hinders you otherwise. Or if an infant never grows up and perishes before they have the opportunity to perceive those things. We call it age of accountability or moral light. You cannot escape that revelation. That's how the Bible says there's no man without excuse. Romans 1.18, God's glory is revealed in creation. Leaving all men without excuse. Romans 2.15 is laws revealed in our heart. The conscience bearing witness within. Again leaving us all without excuse. When we sin or if anyone sins it's with knowledge. You know what that makes sin? It makes it a crime. It makes it a violation of the best. Of the highest good. It makes it a violation of love and reason. What was worth. What we should have done. What I ought to do. Even sinners know they ought to do certain things. They just don't do it. That's what Paul's example was in Romans chapter 7 of his former life before he was a converted man. He knew what he ought to do, but he couldn't find any strength to do it. He cried out, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through the Spirit, he said. He was saved, praise God. Uh, His story there. Sin has been set forth as this. Sin is this, and I'm about to close here. Sin is a free choice Contrary to moral knowledge of our obligation. Sin is. Uh, there's a lot of things out there today that are taught. And I, I know that it, it's, it's hard to, to deal with some of these things. Some people teach that God's law is impossible. Uh, I, I disagree with that. I think God's law is reasonable. Uh, we read about that in Deuteronomy. And we'll also read about it in uh, the book of 1 John. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 11 through 14. Listen to how God talks to Israel. 
The commandment which I command you this day, it is not hidden from you, neither is it far off. The commandments I give you are not in heaven, that you should say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither are the commandments of God beyond the sea, that thou should say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh unto you. It is both in your mouth and in your heart that you would do it. That's how close the law of God is. Listen to the listen to what first John says. And I, I, I know it's uh, going on an hour here, but I'm I'm about to close. Stay with me just for a second. And first John chapter five. Listen to what he says here. First John chapter five, verse three, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments. are what? They're not grievous, brother. I don't find it hard to do God's will when I'm yielded to his spirit like I need to be. When I see that his expectation of me is to love God supremely with the ability that I have and love my neighbor with the ability that I have, it's not impossible and it's not difficult. The only person that finds the life of God difficult is someone who's still living for self supremely. That's the only reason it seems hard. Because everything that God is expecting of you grates against your purpose of heart that you have. And that needs to be yielded on the altar tonight in order to overcome it. God is not like Pharaoh in Exodus 5, 7 through 8. Pharaoh demanded Israel to make bricks. But guess what Pharaoh didn't give them? He didn't give them the ability to make bricks. And he commanded them, make bricks. We can't make bricks. You give us no straw to make bricks. And his servants come to Pharaoh and say, the fault's not with them, it's with you. You don't give them any, any straw to make bricks with. And he beat them and scourged them. They couldn't help it. Yet God, they suppose in the Christian world today, sends sinners to hell for what they cannot help. He would be a monster if that were God. That's definitely not the God of the Bible. But that's a lot, a lot of the church world around you. And that misconception has really blotted God's character. I can tell you in the open air, I don't know how many of you are familiar with any type of theological understanding. What I'm kind of knocking on is Calvinism in a sense. And, uh, and uh, most, 99% of the ejections I get, 99% of people who leave the church that I've talked to, young teenage kids or college kids, left it for the, question, for the, for the reason that they, uh, they could not accept the God of Calvinism as they were taught that he is. And that's not God's character at all. God has made no one for the sake of hell. Hell was not made for you, Jesus said, for the devil and his angels. Mankind was not in the mind of God when hell was formed. At all. At all. All the laws of God are based on one great law, the law of love. God governs us for the sake of promoting love. And God's desire is that we would forsake all selfishness and revival and return to his love. Lord Jesus, as we come to you tonight, Father God, I just want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for your words of truth, your words of wisdom, your words of righteousness. Father God, I pray tonight that you would enlighten our eyes and warm and enlighten our hearts to all that you offer to us, Jesus, in revival. 
Father God, I pray that you would uh, move in us tonight, Lord Jesus. And if you'd be dealing with a heart, I pray, if you're, God's dealing with you, then hurry, hurry, hurry to the altar. If God's dealing with you now, hurry, hurry, hurry to the altar. Do not wait, do not hesitate. If God is dealing with you now, you may not have another opportunity. Tomorrow may not come. God's not obligated to give you tomorrow. If God's dealing with your heart right now, young, old, rich, poor, come to the altar. Does anyone have any needs on their heart tonight? We want to cry out for a move of God tonight in the church. I welcome you to the altar. I'm going to pray here as well. And we'll close with worship and prayer.